out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thanks a lot, Jim, for those wise words. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, as always, keeping it real. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Kate St. John, composer, arranger and instrumentalist who played with lots of different people, best known in the 80s for her work with the Dream Academy, as well as working with lots of other people, including Van Morrison, the Waterboys, Julian Cope, Marion Faithful, Morrissey. I mean, let's face it, what a player. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, as you do, um, yes, we got down to that exciting ex- sort of uh, experience or conversation that was her early years in the indie pop world of the 80s with a band that was formed and titled and called The Ravishing Beauties. And we were just uh, talking about how many bands there were in the 80s. I know, this is like two old people talking about music. What you do. Anyway, and this was her response. Kate, it's over to you. Save this interview now. That's what I was remembering about that time when the Ravishing Beauties were up in Liverpool doing Club Zoo. Um, with Julian Cope's, you know, two-week residency at Club Zoo. And yes. we were hanging out with all these amazing guys and women. I mean, the, you know, Echo and the Bunny Men and... Um, Bill Drummond. The Pale... Bill Drummond, the Pale Swans. The, the Wild Swans. The Wild right? Swans. The Pale Fountains. <laughs> wild Swans. Uh, you, know, all, you know, Courtney Love was there at some point, I think. Oh my god, that's really interesting. Maybe that's a bit later, but I know she was sort of turned up not long after. You know, funnily, and I've been kind of reconnecting with a couple of people on Facebook recently, you know, haven't been thinking about it. And then there was the whole entourage with Teardrop Explodes. You know, there were like sort of friends of theirs who always kind of travelled with them or part of the whole experience. And it was really time you know I'd just left university and I'd been classically trained on oboe and I met Virginia and Nikki at City University we were doing a music degree together and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do when that degree finished and I could have gone into an orchestral career as an oboist but I didn't really want to and then Ginny said do you want to I've got a record deal do you want to join part of my band and that was it yes so just but before that I mean what were your the teen years like because it sounds like you you had a slightly different you know like those formative teenage years are sort of like you know from from like the age of 10 to sort of 18 you know playing music because obviously you you must have been rehearsing or practicing at that stage in your life Well, that was a bit of it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think of my teen years as, as uh, yeah, I was. I did, I did have oboe lessons and I practiced quite a lot and I was in sort of school orchestra, but that wasn't what I remember of my teen years. I was no. doing all the usual stuff that everybody else was, experimenting with drugs and meeting boys and um, that was much more important to me. Than, than the oboe lessons. The oboe thing was just a, little, a kind of side thing. It was important to me, but it, it, it wasn't. I mean, I've got a 20 year old daughter now, and I see the same in her. She does art, and that's she, that's in a bubble on the side of her life, but her main interests are just the usual stuff. Yes, absolutely. But um, you're. I, 
but what, music. Because I, I, I was born in the mid-60s. So during the, it was the sort of the, the early 70s then, you know, obviously I became obsessed about the whole music world and Top of the Pops and the Top 40 on a Sunday evening. And, you know, it was kind of the usual glam stuff that you, you could imagine that I liked. But luckily David Bowie was my first single and first love. And that, that was, it could have been Gary Glitter really, but it wasn't, so that was handy. And um, <laughs> so what, when did, what were you listening to? Well, it, okay, yeah, um. Yeah, I, I, me and my sister were obsessed with music um, from a very, very early age. It was huge in my life. And I'm not talking classical music. I'm talking pop music. I mean, the Beatles. We were Beatles era. Yes. I'm six. Well, we went to see the Beatles. Our parents took us to see. We actually saw the Beatles at Hammersmith Odeon in their Christmas show. My God, that is so cool. No, I know. And they did. A, it was a Christmas show. And I don't remember much about it. I remember I screamed and waved my mum's white furry hat and my dad's hanky. <laughs> and I remember Ringo came on just as a Yeti. And I remember the support band. That I thought it was amazing that the singer had silver hair, kind of like this mop top silver hair. And it was, oh, God, let's see a moment. It was, um, you know, famous guitarist guy. He gave the clap for him. Jeff Beck? Yes, Jeff Beck. Oh, my God. That was a lucky guess, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And, yeah, so that was amazing. And that my first album I bought was, um, oh, it's not, I always say it's Beatles, Beatles but it isn't. It's with the Beatles, the the black cover with the four heads. Right. We had a wonderful record shop um, called Manzi's. And, in fact, he just died, Eugene Manzi. It's all over Facebook. He, He was the guy who ran it, and we used to go... And he would suggest stuff to us, and we'd have a little sort of booth. We'd go in and listen on headphones. Classic. So we listened, you know, to all sorts of stuff as we were growing up, and then we, you know, the hippie thing started, you know, when I was sort of ten, sixty-seven. So were so. your were your parents quite bohemian and slightly hippie? No, no, because they were quite old. You know, they were like forty, thirty-eight when they had me. Which in those days was Kyle. No, my dad was a, a publisher. Yes. One was a history teacher, but they no, they were very political and left wing. Okay. I would surprise them by that. But we did live in Hampstead, which was quite sort of bohemian. It was quite artistic, Hampstead. Yes, because I came from you know we were born in well I was born in the sort of East Anglian countryside. It wasn't really happening. We would and my parents liked country music. It was hard. Jim Reeves, all yeah. that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it wasn't, it, you know, there was a lot to rebel against on the musical front, really. Well, it's funny this thing, I'm, talk, I'm friends with Tracy Thorne, we're really good friends, and, you know, because I read her wonderful book about growing up in suburbia, and I said it was just so different, because like, I was always jealous she's got that thing to rebel from. I didn't really have anything to rebel <laughs> from, because they were really kind of easy, they were easy, very easy going, my parents, and yes. kind of whatever we wanted, and Pretty much, you know. So how did, they, the, how did classical and oboe enter your life? Because it wasn't like, oh, look, here's the Beatles. Oh, get a guitar. Oh, no, no, no. If only. If only it had. <laughs> only I'd learnt guitar, not bloody oboe. <laughs> I've been sort of spending most of my life, you know, sort of trying to undo that decision, weirdly. Um, I was naturally musical, I guess, in hindsight. And I, I used to go to some recorder. Oh. Horrendous recorder, 
recording group. What with those little Brian recorders that we had at yeah. primary school? Yeah. I went, I, I, you know, and it got, quite, you know, in the world of recorder groups, it was quite a sort of good one oh, at good. this school. And then one day, a couple of older girls came in with other instruments. And I was sat next to this girl who was 11 who played the oboe. And I thought it was an amazing sound. I remember it really well. Yes. It was a really inexpressive, moving sound. And I went home and I said to my parents, I would like to learn the oboe. And they looked into it and I was too young. But they said, when you're 11, you can do it. And, you know, I was lucky. They, they you know, they could afford to let me do that. And so I started having oboe lessons. So there was something innate to that sound. And, and that actually has been a constant in my life. Yes. In, or writing or my singing or arranging or playing oboe is I do like it's that emotional expressive side of things and that is kind of what interests me a lot about music and did it come quite easily learning and picking it up and uh, I had to work quite hard at it I, she, I had no sense of rhythm she told me later she almost told me to give it up because she, I couldn't I couldn't get the sort of rhythm thing but but then one day overnight she said I suddenly got it so <laughs> no I wasn't a prodigy no sometimes I didn't bother to practice and you know there was a lot of getting stoned and doing all that you know it, it, it was a really it was really separate it was yes. a separate it had nothing to do with the music I was listening to um that's always been why I've loved what I do when it happens because it, you know it, when I get to actually play oboe in the pop music that I love that's like my two worlds meet. Yes. I'm, 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 I'm so happy when those were times. But, you know, it was a really stupid career choice. Yeah. You know, no, I kind of laughed about the rhythm because I did some ballroom yeah. dancing a few years, decades ago. And um, I learned how to do it and, and probably looked vaguely OK. But I was always told my rhythm and sense of time was rubbish. Um, which was true. I didn't sort of get hurt by that. But it took a lot. And I really felt like I... I I sort of, because I was quite sporty when I was young, I realised you just kind of have to practice. So I used the same thing with dancing. You know, I would just practice and practice. So it kind of looked okay. And I'd often have a really good partner, a good woman dance partner. So I kind of held on to her for dear life. So I kind of, but I knew that I just couldn't, you know, they'd, they'd count the beat and say, come on, David, you can go on this beat. And you think, oh, fuck, I'm shit at this. But um, yes, with, with, with hours of practice, you kind of can look okay, can't you? Mm. well you know I, yeah I mean I did all right I was it was fine and um and then I, when I was I think about 17 my sister's boyfriend was a guy called Danny Wilding and he did this album with Pete Bonus from Brand X it's a really it's, it's, I'm sure you don't know it. it's called <laughs> he's an A&R man island but also played the flute <laughs> and um he got me in to do a session with them playing oboe and it was like the most ex so exciting god absolutely because yeah. of that because of that stage musically you know towards the 60 late 60s and early 70s you started getting all this kind of experimental music and obviously there were people like the incredible string band but there was also another band and one of the members is kind of lives around here called third ear band and there was a woman oh, called, god, yeah with and and <laughs> ursula plank or pank um, I can't remember now. Ursula. I mean, she was one of the kind of key people in that. And then you had another band called Comus as well, and various members live in this area. So were you, were, you know, because there was a lot of experimental... I wasn't, I wasn't into that English stuff, flying teapots. So I no, I, that wasn't my thing at all. That's weird, because Neil McColl, my husband, he's, he's, he was quite into that stuff. 
No, I was into the American stuff. Right. Cosby Stills, Fashion Young, you know, Carol King, James Taylor. Um, I like like some, you know, I like Pink Floyd and I liked Free and, you know, but I I, I was, you know, we, my sister and I, we really, you know, fantasized about America. Yes. Not into that. I, I know it'd be a nice chain to make it that I was, but I really yes. You listen to the third ear band all the time. Well, I, I've always wanted to like it, you know, in the sense of playing it when I'm on my own, but I just couldn't, you know, because it's so difficult. It's a bit like listening to crass records. You just don't do it in front of, on your own, do you? Because it's just That's annoying. not what I wanted for music, you know. I like, I mean, things like James Taylor, Crosby, Stills and Nash, they were like these really gorgeous guys. My you God. Know, Part of what I liked about it, you know, so it was like I get it, that with the third ear band. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite scratchy and quite hard going, wasn't it? Really. So then you took a music degree, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Well, I no, I went. I, li- I went and lived in America for a year when I was 18. I got married and I lived in San Diego. God, that's so progressive. Yeah. Well, he he yeah he he was. Yeah, it's, it's a long story. I won't go into it now. But yeah, he had family there, and that was amazing because San Diego in 1976, you know, being English was a real rarity. And I and I played in the San Diego State University Orchestra as their kind of mascot. Wow. And 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 so I really developed my playing there. You know, and we had lots of travels into Central Central America, and I have a big part of me really loves Spanish culture and Latin American culture because of my ex-husband his mother was from El Salvador and that's a whole different story but um, I had this really amazing year and then we came back and then I went to music college for a year but it was just full of very dull music students who just left home I had nothing in common with them you know I had already lived in America you know way for a year and an 18-year-old, that is incredible. I mean, when you're 18, yeah. you think it's really old, but when you look at an 18-year-old oh, now... I've got a 20-year-old daughter that thought of her just going off to live with someone in America for a year. But, you know, it was a great, an incredible experience. I, I, you know, you remember stuff like that much more than just another year in England. No, yeah, absolutely, it, sort of. It was amazing. And then... Um, so I dropped out of music college and then I heard about this new university degree course in music because I didn't want to study Beethoven or scores or anything like that. I knew nothing of I wasn't interested in any of that. But this course at City University was a, a very radical new course. You could study ethnomusicology and folk music and, you know, and I, I and also play the oboe as part, you know, you could do performance as part of it. So it was absolutely brilliant. I loved that course I learned so much on it I did my thesis on the origins of the tango I wrote about folk song I wrote about Linson Crazy Johnson I I learned so much on it and wow. had a really time and I also met Virginia Astley and Nikki Holland who were both who are still both really great friends um, yes uh, you know um there so that was a, a really great thing so you me. did you did the whole three years got the grant the whole lot yeah, yeah, got the grant. Yeah, so different. How's and it been? I flagged my way on it because I only did, I was lazy, I only did two A levels. So I didn't even do A level music. I like, just blagged. I did a good interview and yeah. flagged on it. I mean, well, <laughs> if you could do that now. Yeah. Or university, like anyone now. But They never really checked on sort of what your great, no one ever thought. They, you know, they realised I had a story, I was quite interesting, and, you know, I'd had a 
a bit of a life. But, you know, they wanted people who had a bit of a life before they went there. And I, I can't remember how I got on it, really, to be honest. But, you know. You did think, it. You stuck with it. That's brilliant. I really, I really, I had a really good time there. So as we trucked into the 80s, which was quite an interesting decade, because we'd had the sort of punk period and then it was that post-punk world of, you know, Public Image Limited and, um, yes... All those oh, other, oh, Gang of Four and all those other bands and, yeah. um, and the fall, the early fall, I suppose. Um, you know, there was, there was a kind of the birth of indie music, I suppose, as, as it started to become a bit more interesting. But uh, politically, we'd had, you know, the Falkland crisis was still happening before the, the miners' strike, and there was huge unemployment. So, did, so how did you sort of find yourself going to Liverpool? Um, well, that was through Virginia. Virginia Astley got a record deal with Wi-Fi Records and she asked Nikki and I to be her band. And then Troy Tate, who was the bass player of Teardrop Explodes, he also had a solo deal with Wi-Fi Records. And I think that's where I think that's where the link came. Uh, and and then so we we knew we met Troy and then were you know wind of the ravishing beauties well, well, no, we we weren't called the Ravishing Beauties then, but the, but no, Virginia's music was picked up on by I guess Copy and Balfi and like Julian Cope and, and Dave Balf and maybe Bill John, and I can't quite remember. Yes. So when they, when so when you got to Liverpool, did you? I mean, because there's quite a. club. They said, "Do you want to come and play at a club zoo?" And then I remember having a discussion on what the name of the band should be. And Bill Jarman was weirdly part of that discussion, I think. Anyway, and somehow it, someone said the raving beauties and then someone laughed and said, oh, how about the ravishing beauties? And then that stuck. <laughs> oh, that's so Bill. Piss so, take, what girls usually wear in bands. It was meant to be a piss take. Yes. We weren't doing that glamorous, sexed up thing at all. You know, we had suede dresses with holes in them, like tea bags. We were, they were called tea bags. And we were... Anyway, so because we all, ha- you know, we had the classical, Ginny and I were both classically trained, flute and oboe, and Nikki came from more of a sort of pop music background. So it was brilliant. You know, we got to play big vocoders and sing, and I played oboe. It was just the dream come true. And the minute, you know, we went up and had really two weeks, we had, we had loads of fun up in Liverpool, and then were asked to do the Teardrop Explodes tour to support them. Yes. Because because um, Cherry Red Records have recently, well, probably 18 months ago, put out a, a, oh, they put out a five CD box set of Liverpool. They did a seven box set for Manchester. And there was an amazing amount of music up there. And there was like, there was the, the club, Eric's, wasn't there? <clears throat> and then you had that band called Big in Japan that seemed to feature lots yeah. of interesting yeah. members who all them, you know, the band didn't really happen, but all the members went on to do quite fantastic yeah. things. So Liverpool did have a lot of creativity at that that kind of particular it period. It definitely did. I think that was Ian Brodie, wasn't it? And, yes, um, and Holly Johnson and Jane Casey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and various, and Bill Drummond, I think, was also it was, it. it was just one of those weird times. You get little pockets of flower creative sort of bubbles, don't you, every now and then, and that was definitely one. And it was, you know, the energy there was, you know, you could feel it. It yes. was really Wow, because you don't realise it at the time so much, but in retrospect, you think, wow, what a time! All that night, all that youth, all, all that, that 
Yeah, I mean, because I suppose we always think, oh, it must have been really grim in various places, you know, especially those those cities that were being, you know... Oh, Liverpool was grim. We were staying in Liverpool 8 in this, this sort of famous B&B. Um, but it was, yeah, the area was really rough still. It, it hadn't been regenerated in the way it was now at all. Yeah. It had nice EU money. Well, it was uh, Thatcher's Britain, wasn't it? It was quite grim. But then was there was also all those other interesting bands, like you mentioned the Wild Swans with Paul Simpson, and then... You had the Lotus Eaters a bit later with Peter Coyne. So there was a lot of kind of... They were quite well-crafted musicians pale, and bands. Pale Fountains, I love them. The Pale Fountains with Michael Head. Yeah. So yeah. that was quite that was quite something. And then you had Courtney Love, who decided to stay there for six months as well. Yeah. So did you get to meet Courtney? I, you see, I can't remember. Um, it's a really weird thing because... Uh, I'd say about five or six years ago, I was doing a thing in Venice at the Venice Biennale. Um, it was a Nino Rota evening sort of concert with an Italian orchestra and myself and a lovely American composer called Giancarlo Varcano were the arrangers for it. And Courtney Love was one of the, was a guest singer. So we kind of were hanging out with her and working with her. And to be honest, she was pretty she was a complete cow. I couldn't bear her. She was making everyone hang around on, on her terms, you know, and being a real diva. Yes. Uh, and um, I ended the, the, this very long day, you know, sort of with a migraine, hating her. And apparently she found out after that I, I was Kate from the Ravishing Beauties and she was horrified. and go, oh, my God, I can't believe that was her and I was so awful. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't remember. I, I we maybe we we probably did, you know. But you know, how can you remember a drunk night in a dark club? This is know, true. No, you know, maybe you know, thirty, forty, was it eighty, ninety, thirty oh. years ago? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I met her or not. No, this is true. Did you um you did a John Peel session though, didn't you? Yeah. Yes. And what was yeah. that like? Well, it was great. He called us the the. Was it the Vera Lynns of the? Oh, damn, I can't remember the Vera Lynns of something, the punk world or something, uh, of the indie world. Yeah, it was great. You know, we were riding high, we were excited, we were having fun. It was, yeah. I mean, I know they've resurfaced now. Oh my God, they're everywhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I know people. People keep posting these things up now. I think this is this is what happens in lockdown. You know, everyone starts finding these old cassettes. <laughs> Which is well, it does sound quite timeless. Actually, a lot of that that music, you know, I still I kind of listen to a lot of that indie stuff and think, I wonder if this sounds really dated to a young person, or am I just being? Oh, you know. I wonder that too. Well, actually, but you know, Virginia is it's an absolutely incredible composer, and she has the most wonderful sense of melody and harmony. And I mean, those songs. I mean, we will meet them again. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I did listen. I sort of, we gritted my teeth and listened. I thought, oh, it's not bad. You know, we've got beautiful harmonies. And it was completely out of its time. And I think it does stand the test of time. Yes. And then, and how did the band then finish? Did you... Um... Well, well, we did the teardrop, you know, tours, a couple of tours. And and then we did it, our solo show at the Purcell Room, which was fun. Uh, started off disastrously because it, 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 the, the first song was a song called Arctic Death and it starts, we had a Wevox take and, and 
you know, the tape would start with this, uh, 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 this sort of synth pattern. And it was my job. I was tape off to sort of bend down and press start. <laughs> and for the sound check, I'd forgotten it, it, it got to the end of the tape. I hadn't re-thread, rewound it to the beginning. So the lights came on, we crept on and I went to press play and I realized it, there was a whole spool had to be rewound. So, you know, and I, and I pressed rewind and then I didn't press stop in the end and the whole tape came off. So I then had to thread it on. <laughs> no. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, I don't know why it ended. There was a falling out about, I don't know, publishing, usual rubbish, band, something, you know, like Ginny and Nikki had quite different visions and I can't remember the details, but I was absolutely gutted when it ended because it, it was just it was everything I wanted to do it was pop music and oboe and I was beginning to write songs you know I was beginning to flower yes and it just ended you know and I was just where on earth am I going to find any other band where I can play oboe I then began to realize the folly of my decision you know why didn't I play bass or something I <laughs> know oh, I know everyone loves a bassist don't they so and it was too late to go back to orchestras. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd found the excitement of playing in uh, gigs and stuff. I didn't want to, you know, that, that was my path was then set. Yes. And then, you, but luckily you get another opportunity, don't you, with the, the yep. dream. So how did that develop? I met Nick at a party and we were just chatting away. And he said he and Gilbert got together recently. They'd been doing a couple of little gigs and... They were looking for players who played interesting instruments and did I want to come and jam with them. So that's how that started. And did it feel quite an organic moment? Did it feel like, oh, yes, this all we all fit together quite beautifully? Yeah, 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 it was good. Yeah. Um, it took a couple of years. I mean, it took a while for the actual single, Life in the Northern Town. It went through various incarnations and... Our manager put up some money to record it and then, then it wasn't right. And then Dave Gilmore mixed it in the end and added his magic to it. It took a while. But, yes. Uh, yeah, you know, it was, it, it was an experience to have. You know, it was the only experience I've had of real kind of fame. It went completely nuts and, we, you know, we sort of went around the world promoting it and went on, you know, Saturday Night Live and exciting American shows and went to Japan. It was a sort of year of complete madness. And did that, did, was that everything you wanted, that moment? Well, no, not really. Um, I mean, it was, it was really fun to do and good to do, but I mean, it, 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 I wasn't really making any money or, you know, and it was actually quite exhausting, the whole thing. And I wasn't, it, in the end, it, it, it wasn't very satisfying for me because they wouldn't really let me in on the creative side, the songwriting, blah, blah. It's that usual old story. Right. So, after a while, it, it became, you know, I didn't just want to be the sort of the girl, you know, the girl with the long hair. You know, I, 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 my primary thing, I'm, I'm a musician and I wanted to be able to make music and play music. And I didn't feel I had enough of a role. Yes. You know, I was fighting for more of a role in the band. Was know. there quite a hippie vibe? <laughs> was, was there quite a hippie vibe to the band? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, Nick and I, we're all three of us are pretty hippie. I mean, we all like those synth more kind of psychedelic American-y type bands. I mean, we had that in common and the acoustic thing. We're none, none of us were punky in any way. Yes. So we, we came. So in a way, we were slightly fish out of water in the whole artificial 80s 
synthy scene, you know, where you spend two weeks on a snare sound. It wasn't really what we were about at all. I think we would have done better if we'd been in the early 70s. Yeah, because the, yeah. the, the 80s was quite an interesting time in music. Because you, I mean, in a simplistic way, you had that kind of the mainstream charts that we see on top of the pops with um, lots of balloons and, uh, and streamers and people dancing. You know, that Trevor Horn-esque kind of production sound, which was really like, you know, it sounds horrendously dated. Then you had the indie stuff, and especially the... The, um, and I always put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which were the years of the Smiths. It's not a watertight theory, but it's the best I can do. Um, well, just and Travis, golden years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose there was a definite vibe during those five years of the Smiths and you had bands like the Go-Betweens and the June Brides and lots of indie kind of jingly-jangly. And then ecstasy appeared and then suddenly everyone was like, God, let's let's have dance music, you know, and the Happy Mondays and Soup Dragons and Primal Scream. And the Smiths split up, because most bands have a five-year narrative, don't they, it seems to be. And and then everybody was like, all right, that's the end of that. Let's get, you know, let's go and party now. And then you had grunge that came in. So how did you, I mean, the, the Dream Academy didn't sort of fit that comfortably. No, no. well, we, we kind of, I can't remember exactly when we ended, around the end of the 80s, around that time, um, we were dropped you know, I mean, every Dream Academy album took forever, you know. It was a very sort of fly-dissecting process. And alongside with that, I started getting recognition as a session player. So I was starting to do sessions, um, you know, for different bands, which was nice. So I was building up a kind of separate thing of my own alongside Dream Academy. And um, that's when I met Van Morrison. He asked me to play on No, no Guru, No Method, No Teacher. Oh, my which... God, that's one of my favourite albums. In the Garden is a really amazing song. Well, that's that's the, when I first played with him. I played on four tracks of that album. I played Oboe and Cor Anglais and Got to Go Back, Foreign Window, Tiananog and Here Comes the Night. Yes. And so... So I had this other thing kind of going along concurrently and then and then Van asked me to be in his band. And that was it. But before um, the before the van, when you were doing the last album for Dream Academy, the um yeah. the a different kind of weather, did you feel like that was was the writing on the wall that, that was going to be the last oh, album? For me it was, yeah. I I had had enough of not being able to be to writing and I was just I wasn't getting enough out of it anymore. Yes. No, not at all. Yeah, no, I, for me, I was really happy when it ended. I mean, it was great at the time, and I'm thankful for it, but, it, it yeah, it, 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 it was definitely time for me to move on. Definitely. And it was, quite, it was quite a golden time for Van Morrison as well, wasn't it? Oh, I lucked out. I mean, he, we, I was part of a whole new band, you know, so he, he, he you know, he got excited because there was a new swath of musicians and uh, it was the most incredible experience those years in that band. Yes. Because he's, you know, he's an amazing band leader. You know, I, I say I'm, I'm, I'm a real sort of, I love being a side person in the band. And, and, I, and you, if you're a side person, you need a really strong leader, just like, you know, you do in the country. You need a leader you can trust. I'm like, <laughs> bastard, yeah. lead our company now, our, our country now. But you know you need a, a strong leader that you trust in, and in, and he's he's amazing on stage, and he gives you freedom. You know, if if you suddenly I got a little idea for an oboe line, something I'd try it out, and if you liked it, you go, yeah, that's it. 
and then so next time I would do it again and that would be, become part of the thing and that's how those long sort of medleys would develop in the band and so his energy was infectious and I, I mean I learned so much I learned you know I, I was sort of just learning sax then and I was sort of plunged into the deep end not knowing what I was doing but then then some other horn players came in and I learned how to play in a horn section and realized how much I loved doing that yes I you know had some amazing nights and with that band and and there's there's a double live album which isn't so well known a night in San Francisco which we did at the peak of our heights and it's an absolutely amazing fan live album i really recommend it especially disc two disc two yeah there's some moments where he does covers of man's world and there's just of such excitement with them he takes the band up and then it goes down and yeah it's yeah so it was it was a really it was a really really good time and when did and how did that sort of change how did it end yeah well, it always ends after a while. You know, no, nobody stays in bands, band forever. I, I was developing a project with Roger Eno. That's why I met Roger Eno, who's on the All Sense label. So I'd done an album with Roger singing and writing a few songs concurrently. And then I'd re- I reached the point where I was ready to do my own solo album. And, I, you know, I got them... Uh, uh, all Saints gave me the money to do it, but I, you know, when you play, when you play with Van, you have to be available. You can't do anything else. So I said to him, "Look, I want to do my solo album." So I came, and he went, "Yeah." And that was and it. I went off and did that, and um, so then you know, a new era started. And how did you find being a solo artist? Was that was were you ready yeah. for it? That's so funny. You should ask that. It's, it's something very dear to my heart. You know, this thing of you know it's so comfy being a sideman and then suddenly you're you're the front person and everyone's coming to you with their cab receipts <laughs> you know it's a whole different role you know I, I I don't really want to be that that person at the front I can't I can't say the word I use but you know we laugh about it Neil and I the, the something rhymes with front at the front um <laughs> You know, because a lot of singers, they're just such egomaniacs. So it didn't really sit comfortably with me. But at the same time, you know, I've got a, a small light that really wants to do that. I want to write songs and express myself. So I've been, you know, I'm, I'm quite shy in that way. So it was really great to do it and great to be the producer. I mean, I co-produced it with uh, a French uh, composer called Joseph Racai. But it was great to be in the sort of hot seat and be able to make my own decisions my own creative decisions after so many years in the dream academy of not being able to do that yes because you have played with some very extreme people haven't you including one of my favorite artists though it's a bit tricky now morrissey oh yeah that was a one-off session what was the actual session that that you were um it was he was doing a cover version of that's entertainment oh yes yes down clive langer who I, I'd known I'd known for a long time. He was sort of a friend of my sister's when we were teenagers. And uh, Clive got me down to the studio in the country and I played on it. And he was very nice, Morrissey. And then I I was going to stay for dinner because it, it was like a two-hour drive and it was sort of 6.30 and yeah. I hadn't eaten anything. And Clive said, well, stay for dinner and drive home. I said, yeah, absolutely, great. And then I was informed that Morrissey said I wasn't allowed to stay for dinner because Vic Reeves was coming to visit and he didn't want 
he wanted to have Vic Reeves complete attention. He didn't want Vic Reeves to be distracted by me being there. So Clive was just paused and said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sort of sent home. <laughs> Do it with a sandwich and a packet of crisps. Yeah, that, that says a lot about Morrissey. <laughs> Oh dear, yes, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And then, and also, well, coming into to the noughties, you did a, um, was it a project with Joe Boyd as well on the work of Nick Drake? Oh, well, that's been a project I've been, I did for years and years and years. I mean, we've done lots, yeah, we did a one concert, but then, then that reformed as a, a new thing uh, around 2008. And um, we, we've done lots and lots of those concerts. They've been one of the most brilliant projects I've ever worked on. Yeah. I mean, Joe's always been really great to me and always championed me. And he he and I would get together and think about which singers and what songs they would sing. Then I got I put the band together and um, I got him, uh, Neil McCall, who's um, happens to be my husband, but I didn't get him in. He's my husband. I got him in because he's the most amazing guitarist. So he was sort of Nick Drake and then had this great band. Danny Thompson was on bass, the original bass player who's obviously with Nick Drake. And then we had a seven piece string section and we had a kind of rolling roster of, of singers. I mean, it was it was filmed for BBC Four. The concert at the Barbican is still out there somewhere. And we yes. did an amazing album. It's out there, but no one really knew about it. Yeah. Way to Blue, the songs of Nick Drake with, with lots of fantastic versions and Teddy Thompson singing River Man and all um, all sorts of great stuff on it. And it must be amazing as, a, as an artist being able to work with people like Joe because I know he, he did early Pink Floyd, he was part of the UFO yeah. club in the 60s which was one of those kind of amazing clubs that became quite legendary and then he would sort of yeah try desperately to work with the incredible string band to get them big they even played at woodstock can you believe it that's such a strange thought and then they and then nick drake so you know who never quite made the commercial break did he he was always in the right place at the right time joe he was everywhere and he he did that he got that aretha that amazing aretha film i don't know if you've seen it the one that came out the footage of her doing the, the gospel shows in la in the 70s he 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 was behind that recently. I mean, he's he's yeah, he's fantastic, Joe. I mean, he's one. Of, you know, as you get to my, I'm 62 now, and you look back and you think people who've been really important in your life. You know, musically, Joe's been one of those sort of co- wonderful collaborators that I've been lucky enough to work with. Yes, absolutely. Met so many people through Joe, and you know, it's yeah, it's a it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yes. And just last, and when you reflect back on, on sort of your, your sort of career in those decades, which, which bits bring you most happiness? It sounds like Van Morrison, actually, doesn't it? Well, doing my solo albums, Van Morrison, I had a wonderful time working with a, Boris Grubenskikov. I, I produced two of his albums, co-produced two of his albums. He's like the Bob Dylan of Russia. He's, he's a, that was a really lovely time. Roger Eno, I've worked with, done quite a lot of projects with. Um, I'd say the Nick Drake things. I mean, in the noughties, I've been doing lots of MDing, you know, doing these big multi-artist concerts. So I've done, I've had some amazing concerts. Yet my other other person, along with Joe Boyd, who I worked, collaborated with loads in a similar way, was Hal Wilmer. I don't know if you know of him. No. Oh, he's he's an amazing. Oh, he just, I say, is he just died of COVID in New York. It was really, really awful. Just in April, age 64, he was struck down 
and um, he oh you should check him out. He he I first heard about him. He did he did an amazing album called Amacord, which is the or the music of Nino Rota, who's the uh, composer who did all the Fellini films and the Godfather theme. And, and how it was very maverick. He had this idea of having jazz versions of of Nina Rota themes. So, yes, Carla Blay and, and Young Winton Marsalis and all these cool people. So then, and then Hal did another album, which is different singers and pop famous artists doing um, Disney songs. He's done all sorts of different things. So I've done a, quite a lot of projects with him. Uh, wonderful. Well, he's I've been an arranger for big sort of ensembles of Nina Rota stuff and also we did the Rogues Gallery a whole load of amazing uh, gigs and an album of people people like Nick Cave to all sorts you know all sorts of people doing um, sea shanties yes so so would you say that your natural go-to place is folk music no folk music folk music no but, no i mean I don't, I, honestly i've had so many incarnations so many different roles i'm an arranger i have done a played in a lot of folk music in the last few years and partly because of neil obviously he my my husband neil comes from his mum is peggy Stiego and his dad was you and nicole so there's a whole folk thing there mm-hmm. and um we've done some wonderful tribute concerts for you and nicole with a lot of folk artists and Neil and I worked with um, Martin Carthy, Norma Waterson and Eliza Carthy lots and produced an album for them recently, The Gift Band. Um, but I'm not a folky. No, I'm classically, I'm not folky. So I just wondered if you were. No, I think, and I like, I mean, I do arranging now. I did some orchestral arrangements for Laura Marlowe, Chris Griever, a closer connection last few years and that was that for me was the most amazing doing Laura nine songs with Laura Marling with full orchestra in a big concert hall that was that was one of the huge peaks of my musical life a few years ago it's impressive that you've you've managed to keep that sort of energy and focus and haven't become because most people get a little bit bitter and twisted and and I'm a really late developer. I feel like I'm just sort of, you know, because I've always been quite shy and timid in some ways. I, you know, only now, when I'm sort of 60, am I doing stuff I would, could only have dreamt of when I was younger, like arranging for an orchestra. Yes. And, and bringing, you know, having the confidence to bring all... I love putting bands together that are right for a project or putting artists with the right song. I, got, I think I have a talent for that, so I love doing that. And then playing in it myself, you know. So I'm now I'm working on as lockdown. Of course, it's been a complete disaster for us. All, all work has gone. Neil was about to go on tour with David Gray. That's all cancelled for a world tour. So we're just both at home writing songs. We're going to do another album, solo album. And uh, but God knows how we're going to make a living. Yeah. <laughs> like all the other musicians, it's an absolute. It's it's a disaster, you know. It's, it's. I can't even think. It's too awful. No. You know? It's just. When 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 will we ever be able to do gigs again? Yes, you I know. know. You'll be looking well, out. You look out to an audience of people wearing masks. It'll be very strange. Well, I wouldn't mind that, but you can't have an audience. It's not going to work with two meter rule. All the venues are going to go under. They're already going under. And um, yes, I know. It's too. 
I don't care so much for me, but for the younger generation, you know, my daughter's 20, what, you know, it's really, what's the outlook for them? You know, we've got dreadful, dreadful Brexit, and now this, you know, just, I hate what's happening in our country. I hate it. Yeah, I know. It's not yeah. good. So, terrible, terrible government we've got. Yeah, that- not a good time. So on that downer. But what just lastly, what would you say to an eighteen year you know, if you could say something to your eighteen year old self or just generally something that you've you've <laughs> yeah. but I know, but you, you managed to get married and move to um America in eighteen, which is kind of the only person I've ever spoke to who's done that actually. Yeah. Well, that was the guy I married. He was a very particularly interesting family and everything to do with that family was kind of exciting and international. But um, no, I, well, personally, I wish I wish I probably I love Oba, but I kind of wish I'd played the bass or something because there would have been just a lot more sort of meat and potatoes work. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, for young people, I think it's put the work in. You know, I feel like I would spend a lot of my twenties not, you know, just messing around really, and I would kind of wish I'd put the work in. It's actually hard work is the most satisfying thing. I mean, apart from having a loving relationship, it's the best thing you can do is work hard. Yes. The antidote to anxieties, the antidote to so many things. To find something you like doing, have the confidence and work hard at it. Yes. And, you know, that would be my advice. Excellent. Well, look, Kate, thank you ever so much for this. Actually, just one, just one thing, because one of the best concerts I've seen for years has been Camille O'Sullivan doing the work of um, David Bowie and Nick Cave. And you've worked with her, haven't you? Was she? Would you? Would you rate her as one of your? Oh, she's great. Yeah, she's an ama- She's an amazing interpreter of songs. Absolutely. Yeah. No, she's a wonderful woman. I've done quite a few concerts. She did the Rogues Gallery thing. She did the Melt. Uh, Richard Thompson's Meltdown. I did an evening of physical song. She did the Next by Jacques Brel. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Oh, came so far for beauty. Yes. No, she she was just one of those most memorable. Mem- yeah. No, she's brilliant. Memorable people. Mesmerising. Fantastic. And that was me in conversation with Kate St. John. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for that interview, indeed. Yes, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. I will be there. Keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. And also, all these shows have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. You can't go wrong, can you? Anyway, look, this is um, this is me checking out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.